0: Well, today we are looking at a second pre-Reformation reformer, and his name is John Huss, or the way it was pronounced then was Jan Hus. And as we begin to do this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity for us to study your word and to be able to look at this great reformer and the convictions that he had and As we see that also in Scripture, we just pray you'd open up our minds and our hearts and our understanding that we would understand your truth and apply it to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jan Hus, as I said his name is pronounced, he lived after Wycliffe, whom we talked about the last two weeks. But he was living before Luther in the 14th century. This man was from the Bohemian town of Husenik. Husenik today is actually a small town of about 1,500 people in the Czech Republic. That is in Central Europe. It borders Austria, Germany, Poland, and Slovakia. Some believe that his name was actually derived from his hometown of Husenik. He came from a well-to-do farming family. He was a graduate from the University of Prague. He was a lecturer, a dean, an ordained priest. And he also became a follower of John Wycliffe's after reading some of his writings. And he became the link between Wycliffe and Luther. Luther said this of Huss after reading some of his works. He says, I was overwhelmed with astonishment. I could not understand for what cause they had burned so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. Huss's name means goose. And he told his executioner before he was burned at the stake, you're going to burn a goose, but in a century you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. Many believe that the swan that he was talking about was Luther, who a hundred years later would nail his 95 Theses to the Door of the Wittenberg Church. Today the people in the Czech Republic... They remember Huss. They have actually a public holiday that commemorates his death, which is July the 6th. He died in 1415. So every July, the 6th of July, they have a holiday in honor of him. Now, some things that I want you to pay attention to about this pre-reformer is that he was very bold. If you'll notice the title, I refer to him as the fiery forerunner. This man was very bold in speaking out against the same things that Wycliffe spoke out against, the teachings and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, I want to tell you some of the things that he believed and preached and some of the things that he said, and this will give you really a great idea of his boldness. He believed that pastors should model godly lives and preach vivid accessible sermons. I agree with that too. He believed that they should not make fortunes off their ministries, but should think of themselves as servants. He objected to and even confronted the archbishop, and he said this when he confronted him. How is it that fornicating and otherwise criminal priests walk about freely while... Humble priests are jailed as heretics and suffer exile for the very proclamation of the gospel. Thomas Fudge said in 1405 he also denounced alleged appearances of Christ's blood on communion wafers as an elaborate hoax. His sermons condemned the sins of the clergy. He ridiculed the power some priests claimed for themselves when they called their parishioners Reprobates and declared, we can give you the Holy Ghost or we can send you to hell. He even roared against abuses. He said this, and I quote, These priests deserve hanging in hell, for they are fornicators, parasites, money-misers, and fat swine. They are drunks whose bellies growl with great drinking, and are gluttons whose stomachs are overfilled until their double chins hang down. As I said, fiery forerunner, and you could imagine their response. They were appalled at what he had to say about them, and they murmured against him. He even lashed out against their practice of buying their spiritual office. And he even condemned Prague's wealthiest clergy. You know what he called them? The Lord's fat ones. Because what they were doing was charging steep fees for administering sacraments and for taking multiple paid positions without faithfully serving any. And while claiming apostolic secession, they bore no resemblance to the apostles. If you're going to say you're that link in history," then you should be doing what they did. You should talk the way they talk. Content, behavior, attitude. And of course, this didn't sit well with the church. Certainly didn't sit well with the Pope. But Huss was committed to the gospel nonetheless. And you see it in his preaching, you see it in his life, and you also see it in his death. Huss was a man of conviction. Today, we have to look around to see if we can find people of conviction especially in the changes that our world has experienced in the last three years. But he was willing to die for his convictions. And he did eventually die on 1415. As they tied him to a stake and stacked the wood around him, after they lit it, he began singing, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy on me. Before his death, he was ordered to appear in Constance to answer to his teachings, and the Pope had actually promised him safe conduct to appear, but after his arrival, he was arrested. He thought that they were going to debate his teachings, and that's exactly what Luther wanted to do. But they weren't interested in debating. All they were interested in is that you take the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, you don't question them, and you're obedient to them. He was given several opportunities to recant, but he refused. And as they marched him to the place of execution, they actually put a paper hat on his head with pictures of Satan and the word heretic. One author writes this, After the performance of high mass and liturgy, Hus was led into the church. The bishop of Lodi delivered an oration on the duty of eradicating heresy. Then some of these of Huss and Wycliffe and a report of his trial were read. He protested loudly several times, and when his appeal to Christ was rejected as a condemnable heresy, he exclaimed, O God and Lord, now the council condemns even thine own act and thine own law as heresy. Since thou thyself dislay thy cause before thy father as the just judge, And as an example for us, whenever we are sorely oppressed, an Italian bishop pronounced the sentence of condemnation upon his writings. Again, he protested loudly, saying that even at this hour, he did not wish anything but to be convinced by the holy scriptures. He then fell upon his knees and asked God with a low voice to forgive all of his enemies. And then followed his degradation... He was enrobed in priestly vestments and again asked to recant, and again he refused. And with curses, his ornaments were taken from him. His priestly garments were destroyed. And the sentence was pronounced that the church had deprived him of all rights and delivered him to the secular powers. And then a high paper hat was put on his head. It had a Latin inscription and that Latin inscription was Hereshaarch, which means arch-heretic, or the originator of heretical doctrine, or the founder of a sect that, sust- that sustains such doctrine. And then he was led away to the stake under a strong guard of our men. And as I said, as he came to that place of execution, he spread out of his, his hands, he prayed out loud, And then he began to sing. The executioners undressed him. They tied his hands behind his back with his robe and his neck with a chain to a stake around which wood and straw had been piled up so that it covered him all the way up to his neck. And even at the last moment, the imperial marshal asked him to save his life and recant. But he said this, God is my witness, that I have never taught that of which I have been accused by false witnesses. And the truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, I will die today with gladness. And thereupon the fire was kindled with John Wycliffe's own manuscripts that they used to kindle the fire. When you look at his dying words, he proclaimed in a hundred years, God will raise up a man who calls for reform and will not be able to be suppressed. His ashes were gathered. They cast into a nearby Rhine River. And they thought that that was the end. Just as with Wycliffe, they thought it was the end. In fact, we said... One of our occasions, we're talking about John Wycliffe. That 43 years after his death, they dug up his bones and burned them and cast them into a river. They did everything they could to stop these men, but there was no stopping it. A hundred years later, Martin Luther would come on the scene, reading Huss and Wycliffe, and he would champion those same arguments. And he would formulate them into a thesis with 95 points. You think my sermons are long? 95 theses. And in fact, when he nailed them to the church in Wittenberg, his desire was to debate these. But again, Rome was not interested in a debate. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is is gain. Death for a believer is gain. Why is that? Because it's instant heaven. Instantly, you leave this life and you're in the presence of Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's exactly what happened to Huss and Wycliffe and Luther and every believer before and after. That the very moment they die, they go into the presence of God. Same will occur for us. Even Jesus said to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, Today you will be with me in paradise. There are many verses that talk about conviction. And as I was meditating on the life of Huss. I have began to think, what are some things that we can pull from him, his life? And if anything we can pull from his life is his conviction, his commitment to the gospel, and his willingness to die on the account of the gospel. And as I said earlier, to try to find people with conviction is becoming harder and harder. But we need to be people of conviction, and we need to be people that are committed to the gospel, to the truth. And just as we heard what Paul says, that death is gain, there are many verses that Paul reveals that give us his conviction. And this morning I want to look at two of them, and they are found in Romans chapter 1. So let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1. And those two verses are found in verses 16 and 17. For Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. See, for us, as well as for the Apostle Paul, as well as for all the Apostles, because all of them were persecuted, and all of them but one were martyred, they were committed to the Gospel. The Gospel was personal to them. And the Gospel is personal to us. But look how Paul says that in verse 16. He says, I, me, Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Can you echo those same words? Are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Now, sometimes you'll be tempted to whether you're ashamed or not. And that's in those moments when you have those opportunities to talk about the gospel, talk about Christ, But for Paul, Paul went from being a persecutor of the church to being a proclaimer of the gospel. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, we'll look at that in just a moment, that on his way to Damascus, he was set out to arrest and imprison other believers who were followers of the way. But after he became a believer... He showed even more diligence, more effort, more sacrifice than he did before. He was committed to the Scriptures. He was schooled in the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. But he felt that Christ and he felt that the way that was being proclaimed was against the Old Testament Scriptures until he had an encounter with Christ. So he was a proclaimer of the gospel because the gospel had impacted his life. And that was true for Huss. The gospel impacted it in a personal way. Huss said this, he said, Seeing that I am always ready to give an answer to the satisfaction of every man who asks concerning the faith I hold, I declare with a sincere heart that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God and very man. And that his whole gospel is established so firmly in the truth that not a jot nor tittle of it can fail. And finally, that his holy church has been so firmly founded on a firm rock that the gates of hell cannot in any wise prevail against it. I am ready in the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, himself the head, to bear the punishment of a dreadful death Rather to state anything else than his truth. Can we say that? The gospel had totally transformed his life. He was not the same person. In fact, when he set out to be a priest, he thought it was a good way to to make a living. And I'm sure the other priests looked at it that way. And They weren't committed to Christ or committed to the gospel. And let alone would die for those beliefs. Paul was the same. If you look with me over at Acts chapter 9, we see in Acts chapter 9 his conversion. As I said, he was on his way to Damascus. He was breathing out threats. Verse 1, murder against the disciples of the Lord. He had went to the high priest, asked for letters... So that he could go to the synagogue in Damascus And if he had found anyone who was part of the way That he would be able to bring them bound to Jerusalem And so as he's heading in that direction Verse 3 tells us it happened that he was approaching Damascus And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him And he fell to the ground And he heard a voice saying to him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see Anything and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and he didn't eat or drink. What do you do when Christ saves you? Do you remember that? What was the first thing you did, or one of the things you did? I know for me and my friends, first thing we did was. We went to the store and bought a Bible. Didn't have a Bible. And then, while we were there, we had bought some tracks and we went to the very bar that I used to frequent and stood outside and passed tracks out to my friends as they were going in and coming out. And believe me, they thought that this was the most humorous thing that they had ever seen. Because here is a man that we used to party with, and now he's refusing to do this, and he's telling us we're going to hell... This isn't the same guy. And they were right. It wasn't the same guy. God had transformed my life. I didn't want to go back to those places except for to warn them about the wrath that was to come and to introduce them to the same Jesus that I had received. Well, it says in verse 20 in Acts 9, that after he had received his sight and was baptized, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God. The people were marveling at that. Here is the man that used to persecute those who were of the way, those who believed this very thing that he is now proclaiming, and now listen to him. Well, that was just the beginning for Paul. Paul preached and traveled, establishing churches, writing and visiting churches. No wonder that out of the 27 books in the New Testament, he dominates the New Testament with 13 of the 27 letters. In fact, there are 136 references to his preaching. He told the believers here in Rome, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 15, that he was ready to preach the gospel to them. See, he had a passion and a conviction. And and when the Lord saves you and changes you, you have this passion now and this conviction. And you want others to come to know the same Lord Jesus Christ that you know now. In fact, Paul wrote about that passion in Colossians 1. In verses 28 and 29, he says that we proclaim Him, that is Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. He says, for this purpose, right here, this purpose, also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me, He experienced the power of God. He saw the power of God as he preached. And he knew that he wanted to proclaim Christ to every man. You know, we live in a, a day and age for the church where the church doesn't look at unbelievers like that. All they look at is how can I build my church? How can I get more and more people in the church? And so they begin to target age groups. And sad to say, they leave a lot of people out. I don't agree with that at all. Little kids need Christ just as much as mid-age adults and as well as seniors. Everyone needs Christ. Because everyone is a sinner. And without Christ, you are under the condemnation of God. And at that very second that God's grace stops as it ministers to you and you die for an unbeliever, where do they go? Hell. No purgatory as the Roman Catholic Church taught. No place of purging. No place where people could pay to get you out through the indulgences. Paul's desire was to proclaim Christ. He demonstrated that, and he also demonstrated that he was not ashamed of the gospel. See what, what is connected with shame is you're holding on to your life, and when you hold on to your life, you don't say what you need to say. You you're not bold. And people need to hear the boldness of the gospel. You know where you start when you preach the gospel? Do you start with the good news? You start with the bad news. You know where you start? You talk about hell. I was using an analogy as I was talking to someone this week. And I said, if if your neighbor's house was on fire, uh, what would you do? Well, you'd run over there and you're banging on the door and you're trying to get them out of the house. Because you see a sure death uh, about to happen. And I said, you know what? Right now you're the one sitting in the house. Your house is on fire. What are you going to do? There's only one way out. And that is to repent. Repent. And surrender to Christ. And trust Him and Him alone for your salvation. That's it. And that's exactly, again, what Paul did. That's what Huss did. That's what Wycliffe did. Luther. And many, many others. And people today. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, and this is for those of you who are struggling with opening your mouth and being bold and speaking the gospel. He says, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We all equally have The mandate, the command from Christ to make disciples, to go and preach the gospel to every creature. Not to segregate the creatures or the people, not to target, not to create little schisms and and little groups that you're going to target and share the gospel with them. Every person. And if you aren't willing to do that, your very salvation is even, even questioned. It was Charles Spurgeon said that you're either a missionary or you're an impostor, because every Christian's a missionary. Every Christian wants to see unbelievers come to Christ. And I'll tell you what Paul confessed Jesus before men? And he paid for it with his life. Let me give you some examples of this. Over in Acts 16, verses 23 and following, we find that he was imprisoned for preaching in Philippi. It says, When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And if you remember the story in Acts 16 that there was a slave girl going around, these are the servants of the Most High God. The only problem with that is it was coming from a demon-possessed woman. What she was saying was true. But the truth didn't need to be proclaimed from the mouth of a demon. You understand that, don't you? We don't partner with Satan. We don't partner with his kingdom that we used to be part of. And while they were there, what did they do? They sang hymns to God, and all of a sudden an earthquake happened, all the chains fell off, all the doors came open, and the jailer waking from sleep had thought everyone had left, but they were all there And you know what he was about to do? He was about to give himself that one-way ticket to hell. Because the jailer was not a believer. And if you were caught sleeping and your prisoners escaped, guess what was going to happen to you? You're killed for it. And that's why Paul, he cried out and he said, Do yourself no harm. We're all here. And the jailer came trembling to him and Silas and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? You know, some of us, if we we get a response like that, we're kind of falling all over ourselves because... You know, that's what you want to hear, right? Someone say, how can I be saved? Well, if you're wise, you could answer the same way Jesus answered when the rich young ruler came to him and wanted to have eternal life. And what did he tell him? He said, go and keep the commandments. He didn't tell him what he wanted to hear. But he called him to submit the word of God that he had known from a child and what did that young man say which ones and he began to name about four of the commandments and you know what, the, you know what he said after that he says all these things I've kept from my youth what do I lack and then Jesus hit him in another place, and this probably hurt more than the first one, because he told him to go sell what he had and give it to the poor. The man was a wealthy man. And does that mean that you got to give away your money to be saved? No, but you got to be willing to do whatever Jesus says. If Jesus told us all uh, to do something... And you would think in your mind that this is the strangest thing to be asked to do, but if you knew it was Jesus who said to do it, you could do it, right? Now, if someone came up to me and said, Jesus told me to go out there and spray paint myself blue and hang from a tree, uh, and I'm fixing to do that, and I'd say, no, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that to you. He wouldn't say that. So he was in prison while he was in Philippi, and it was for preaching the gospel over in Acts 17.10 as he preached the gospel there in Thessalonica there were many of them that didn't have the right response and brought about persecution and they pretty much chased Paul out of Thessalonica and it says in Acts 17.10 the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived, guess what they did? They went into the synagogue of the Jews and began preaching and Verse 14 tells us he had to be smuggled out of Berea. It says, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. You go even further as he comes into Athens, he's laughed at as he talks to those Stoics and philosophers at the Areopagus. It says in Acts 17.32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they began to sneer. And others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So there were some that were inquisitive because it was a new teaching. and, And all they did at that time was sit around and talk about some kind of new teaching that they had heard. But probably the biggest thing that you could ever say to a Christian who is committed and has conviction to preaching the word is what he said in 1 Corinthians 1 18. He said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. They call you a fool. They call what you're doing is foolishness. (coughs) They call what you're saying is foolish. And they may look at it like that. But for you and me and for them, what is it? It's the power of God. (coughs) Over in Acts 14, 19, when he went into Galatia, uh, they stoned him. It says, but the Jews came from Antioch in Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And most people today would have left the ministry. But you know what Paul did? He got back up, went right back into the city, and picked up where he left off. That's a man of conviction. Conviction over the gospel of Christ. Convicted over the the truth that all people need to hear the gospel. All people need to be saved. Need to be delivered from their sin. Need to be delivered from Satan. Here's how Paul summed up his life. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. And he uses a little bit of sarcasm here with the Corinthians. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so. He says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things. There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. You know, we think it's strange, and even Peter uses that word, when we suffer. But if Jesus, who is our master and Lord, suffered, why do we think we would escape it? Well, maybe it's because you've been listening to Christian radio, and Christian radio sometimes tells you things that are not true. Yes. Especially the one thing that I heard one day that says that it's not God's will that you suffer. Immediately I heard that, Philippians 1, 29 and 30 came to my mind, which says it is God's will that you suffer. John MacArthur says, Paul was never deterred by opposition. He was never disheartened by criticism. He was never ashamed for any reason of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, to this day, it remains true that whoever does not believe will be ashamed of the gospel and contradicted, at least in his heart and conduct. For he who finds pleasure in that which is of the flesh and of the world cannot find pleasure in that which is spiritual and of God. So he is not only ashamed of preaching the gospel, but also personally fights against it and refuses to let it convert him, since he hates the light and loves the darkness. It thus becomes foolishness to him. Indeed, it appears to him as downright stupidity, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14. And that verse says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. Or Romans 8.7, which says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. See, this is the call of the gospel. Are we willing to suffer for it? Because it's certainly attached to it. But that doesn't mean that every time you open your mouth and share the gospel with someone, you're going to be persecuted for it. If that's what you're thinking, then you've mistaken. But I will tell you this. If you live your life like these pre-reformers and reformers did, you will suffer persecution. In fact... Paul told Timothy it this way in 2 Timothy 3:12, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution." That's a promise. Live Godly in an ungodly world, which means living godly in an ungodly world says you confront it. You confront the ungodliness, because you can't be godly around ungodly people and be silent. The call of the gospel is not to be ashamed. The call of the gospel is to deny yourself. Remember Luke 9, 23? The call of the gospel is even, if need be, deny your family. Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty seven, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. As I said, this is the call of the gospel. And the call of the gospel is to publicly confess it. Publicly. And the idea of an unbaptized believer, you won't find that taught in the Bible. Everybody who named the name of Christ took a public stand with Christ and were publicly baptized. And like Matthew 3, they came confessing their sins. When it says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that is public. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that is public. Public. For example, Acts chapter 2. When we look at on the day of Pentecost, we had every nation of Jews there in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit came, He was given to the apostles. And because there were all these nationalities there in Jerusalem... The Holy Spirit had given them the gift of languages. And when they began to preach in the languages of the people, the people heard the gospel and were convicted. They even asked, what shall we do? And what did Peter say? Repent. Let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there were 3,000 that repented. And the church started. church was born. Are you calling people to repent? And if you're calling them to repent, you've got to tell them what they need to repent of. You need to talk about sin. Don't be like some of these preachers that have an opportunity to go on national TV and are unwilling to talk about sin. Unwilling to talk about judgment. Unwilling to talk about the truth of who Jesus is and what He did. All they're interested in is being a celebrity. Celebrity. And they have sold their souls for the lie of the devil. Listen, just because a people gather in a building and they call themselves a church, that doesn't make them a church. There is certain criteria, and we need to start with the gospel. We need to make sure that that is right on. You don't want to get this or miss this. You don't want to be wrong about this. This proclamation of good news was something even given in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 40, in verse 9, it says, "...I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation." Psalm 40, that's David. Psalm 71, 15, he said, My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. And even in Psalm 119, verse 46, he said, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. And shall not be ashamed. If you're ashamed to talk about Jesus to people, you've elevated them far above Christ. Elevated them far above God. And you are lying to them and you are lying to yourself. None of us are promised the next couple minutes. Any of us in here could drop dead in a second. That's why the urgency of the gospel is be saved now. Don't put it off. Don't wait. So the call of the gospel is to even die. If God wills that. You know, with Hus, he had several opportunities to be rescued when he was in that dungeon and he refused I don't know what I would have done in that situation or you don't know what you've done in that situation I know with Martin Luther uh, they swept him away they interrupted his trip back to where he was going and they bound him put a hood over his head and they took him away and he thought it was the enemy that was taking him and it turned out it wasn't them at all and where they took him was where he spent the rest of his time See, the reason why Paul and Huss and others are not ashamed of the gospel, because if you go back to Romans 1, 16 and 17, it tells us here that the gospel is the power of God. It's powerful. See, inherent in the gospel message is the power of an omnipotent God. And that power alone is sufficient to save the vilest sinner. And transform the hardest heart apart from any human arguments or human illustrations or human ingenuity. And why is that? Well, because the gospel is the only way of salvation. There is no other way to God. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And who is that? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. He is the way. He's not one of many ways. He's the only way. And if you're coming another way, then you're not coming to Christ, and you're not coming to God. You may think you are. And you see... Biblical preaching means preaching Jesus Christ. It it means preaching His person, preaching His work. That's why I've said on other occasions that when we're talking to people about the gospel and we're telling them to come to Christ, we need to tell them who Jesus is. And especially today because we have a generation that doesn't know. Let alone the generation that will come after them. Because you see, mom and dad they're not in church they didn't take their kids to church so they don't know anything about the church they don't know anything about Christ they don't know anything about the word of God they've heard Bible they probably have heard Ten Commandments that's it and speaking of the Ten Commandments use them you know what they're for? you know the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments is to show you that you're a sinner that's it If you're having trouble talking to someone and they're so self-righteous, start talking to them about the Ten Commandments. And then you could tell them, if you break one, you break them all. That's what James said. Break one commandment, you have violated them all. This is what Paul did. This is what the Reformers did. The most serious indictment of contemporary market-conscious preaching is the absence of Christ. His name or some fact about Him may certainly be thrown in at the end, but our Lord is rarely central in the trendy preaching of today. Churches have totally changed their purpose. Did you know that the church is not for unbelievers? The church is for believers. Why would we tailor the church to unbelievers? The Bible tells us they do not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And so what many churches are doing to draw people in is that they're, they're tailoring everything to the world. They bring up to the platform uh, rock and roll bands and they paint the room dark and they put on spotlights and they give a little 20-minute talk. I was reading a website last night. And it talked about, you know, what are some things that you need to know about when you come to our church? And one of the things that stood out to me, everybody always talks about come as you are, dress the way you want to dress, and all of that. And they better watch themselves. They may get in trouble on some of that. Because I was doing church planning one time out at the beach, and you couldn't always say come as you are because you know how some people come? (laughs) Dress for the beach. So we had to say, you can come with that on but cover it up. If you're going to the beach afterward, that's fine. Just cover it up, you know. And so what you have here is you have, like I was saying on this website, they pointed out that all their messages are only 30 minutes. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not trying to purposely preach an hour. It just takes an hour to get out what I have to say. Sorry about that. That's the way it works. And if I preach five minutes or ten minutes, I call that a sermonette for Christianettes. It's hard to have depth. Unless I gave you the results of a word study or something like that. I mean, we, we, we could do some depth, but I'll tell you right now, it's going to take more than a few minutes to do it. And I just find it, you know, in many churches today, it's rarely about Christ. And the gospel is all about him. Paul saw that the gospel is impartial and it must be acted upon. Notice what he says He says, For everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. That's what the gospel is for. And it's a shame on the preachers that are targeting their ministry. It's impartial. It's for Jews. We saw that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The people that were there were Jews, according to Acts 2:5. We get the breakdown of them in Acts 2:9 through 11. But it's also for Gentiles. And you're one or the other. You're either Jew or Gentile. Acts 13 Verses 46 and following, it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, and they said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. They're speaking to the Jews, and the Jews had rejected the gospel. He says, Since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And that's another thing right there too. You don't know who's going to believe. So shame on you if you're tailoring it to a certain demographic because the gospel is for everyone. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Who are weary and heavy laden? All of us are. And he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, The spirit and the bride say, come, and all who hears, come. Those indicate to us it's for everyone. But it is to be acted upon. And I want to take a minute and talk about this. The word believe, it's the Greek word "pistuo." it occurs about 250 times in the New Testament. But it's interesting that out of those 250 times, 99 times it occurs in the Gospel of John. He talks about to believe. And listen, if you want to point people to the Word of God that will identify to them who Jesus is and what He did, point them to the Gospel of John. The Word itself means to trust. It means to be firmly persuaded about something. It's to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. You come to this place to where you are fully assured of the Gospel, fully assured of who Jesus is, and you put your complete trust, trust and reliance on Him to save you. And it's through Him and Him alone. You trust in no one else, no church, no people, no cardinals, no saints. Him, Christ, Christ alone. And that word trust, I'll give you another word, is commit. You see over in John chapter 2, It says this, in verse 23, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, it says, "...many believed in His name, observing His signs which He was doing." So they were believing because they saw the signs. But it says in verse 24, "...but Jesus on His part was not committing Himself to them, for He knew all men." Interesting thing, committing or entrusting, verse 24... It's the word pistuo. It's the word believe. But it's translated in trust or commit. So we get an understanding that when we're talking about believing in Christ, we're not talking about just believing some facts in your head. We're talking about going beyond those facts with your life and committing yourself to Him. And I'll tell you right now, When John Huss went to that stake, he could willingly go to that stake and sing those hymns because he gave his life to Christ. He didn't just have some facts in his head about Christ. He had a commitment of heart, a commitment of life. We would say in the vernacular today, he was sold out. A.W. Pink says belief is the principle of saving grace and unbelief the chief damning sin. But here I'll tell you, here's one of your better definitions as far as from the scripture. And it's in John 3.36. Take a minute and look at this with me. John 3.36. I want you to see this. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I realize if you read from, say, the King James, you're going to have one different word in there. But the word that he's using here, it's translated better in the NAS. And I'll show you which one it is. It says, he who believes, and that's used in the present tense, he who is continuing to believe in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not, you could say continue to believe, or he who does not, as it's translated here, obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're talking about obedience. Second Thessalonians talks about that the retribution that Jesus is dealing out on unbelievers is because they do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's used the term obey. When you come to the gospel, that's what it means. You come in obedience to the gospel. Which means you come on God's terms, not yours. Because if you try to switch it up or change it around or make it less than, then you're doing it on your terms. And you're not going to get saved. You're not going to be saved. Here's another definition And it's found in Romans 4. Let me have you go to Romans 4. And I want you to look at verse 21. It says, and it's speaking about Abraham and the promises of God. It says that he did not waver in unbelief. Verse 21. Being fully assured. That what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He was fully convinced in the promises of God. He was fully assured of the promises of God. When he went up to Mount Moriah and he took Isaac and he was told before he left that you're going to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and you're going to offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain that I choose. And he got up early that morning, saddled his donkey, took all the supplies, took the men with him, took Isaac and they went three day journey they get there and his son is saying we have the wood we have the fire but where's the offering and what did Abraham say God will provide God will provide and then all of a sudden he took his son and he bound his hands and his feet and he put him on the altar could you imagine what his son was thinking I'm, I'm, I'm the, the lamb I'm the sacrifice are you kidding me And they even went as far as pulling the knife back to plunge it into him. And an angel from heaven spoke to him and said, Do your child no harm. For now I know that you fear God. You know what else was being taught in that lesson? He loved God more than he loved his only son. Isaac was the son of promise. We read in Hebrews 11 that Abraham actually believed that if he had to take his son's life because he was the child of promise, that God would resurrect him. He was fully assured. That's one Greek word, and it means to be wholly certain, fully convinced. You know what that means. There are a lot of things in our life we're fully convinced about, right? Right? But that's what it means to believe. To be fully convinced. And you commit your life to Him for whom you're fully convinced about. You see, if you go back to Romans 1, Paul, as well as us, believed that the gospel revealed God's righteousness. For Look at verse 17. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And it's faith that activates that divine power that brings about salvation. And it's even in that sovereign act the righteousness of God is seen. We could say the righteousness from God. That would be a better rendering. Because it indicates that God imparts... His own righteousness to everyone who believes. It's not only revealed, but it is imparted. It is reckoned to those who believe in Jesus. The only way that you and I can be right with God is to have His righteousness. And we got it at Salvation. You may still look at yourself the way you do, but God doesn't look at you the same way. And as he continues to say, it's revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And what is that saying? Well, it must be responded to by faith. Faith to faith seems to parallel everyone who believes. And that's the case. Then Paul's singling out the faith of each individual believer. He says there, and as he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith. And this is not a one-time act. It's a way of life. That's why when I was reading in John 3, when he talked about believing, he was using that tense that gives us ongoing action. And that's the present tense. It tells us that something started in the past and it's still in effect. It's still going. And even when the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, he talks about the gospel and he talks about the life of Christ and he talks about these things as if they just happened. But they had happened some 90 years before. That's how fresh it was in his mind. The true believer is made righteous, lives in faith all his life. This is what theologians usually refer to as the perseverance of the saints. So do you share this same kind of commitment? Are you committed like Paul and John has to the gospel? If so then you will be willing to proclaim it. And you'll be, living, be willing to die because of it. You won't be holding on to your life. You'll be like Paul who said in 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Does that describe you? I remind you again what Spurgeon says. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Which are you? Are you a missionary? Have you committed your life to Christ? If you think about it, you're either one heartbeat away from hell or heaven. Take it from somebody that's had heart issues. How serious that is. So which is it? You say heaven. Heaven. Everybody says heaven. I don't know if I've ever talked to, I think i talked to one person in my entire life. I wasn't even a believer then, but he told me sitting in anheuser Bush, the little place where you can go in there and sample the, the beer. We were sitting in there. His dad worked there, got us in. And I remember one day we were sitting in there and he looked at me and he said, Steve, I'm going to hell. Little did he know He prophesied his own life because it was shortly after that he was killed in a car accident. You don't know when that time's going to come when your life here is over. But I will guarantee you this, you're going to live forever somewhere and it's either going to be heaven or hell. It won't be purgatory because the Bible doesn't talk about purgatory, but it does talk about heaven and it does talk about hell. And by the way, it talks more about hell than it does heaven. Why? To warn people about it. Just like the house that's on fire and you're banging on the door and you're trying to get your neighbor out. Your house is on fire. Your house is on fire. And you're doing everything you can to get them out because you know that that is a certain death. But we let people all around us just kind of go on their little lives and people we know, family we know, and they don't have anything to do with Christ and we don't say anything to them because we're afraid. Shame on us. On December the seventeenth, nineteen ninety-nine, Pope John Paul II he told an international symposium, quote, Today on the eve of the Great Jubilee, I feel the need to express deep regret for the cruel death inflicted to John Huss. He commended Huss's moral courage in the face of adversity and death and proclaim that through the scholar's work, Huss, who has been such a point of contention in the past, has now become a subject of dialogue, of comparison, and shared investigation. Whatever that means. And all that might be true, but they never repented. They never repented. Did you know to this day, that there is a curse from the Roman Catholic Church on all non-Catholic churches, and to this day it still has not been lifted, that we have the anathema of the Roman Catholic Church? That's okay. It doesn't bother me. What would bother me is if I had the anathema of God. But these are people who say they speak for God. And as I remind you, last week when we talked about Wycliffe and his desire to put the Bible into English, and one of the reasons for that is so that people could read the Bible in their language and see if what they are telling them is the truth or not. And that's why Rome fought so hard against them. They enjoyed keeping the people in mystery. They couldn't read the Latin. Even some of the priests couldn't read it. They had to be told. But then you have different people come along, these pre-reformers. William Tyndall is a very smart man, knew Hebrew and Greek, knew seven other languages. Smart men who began to challenge the Roman Catholic Church. And yes, they paid for it with their lives, but we can thank God for their commitment because it was through their commitment that we have a Bible in our language. Wycliffe was the first one to put it in English. Tyndall was the second one to put it in English. And what did I read last week? Over 1,300 different translations on the entire Bible. Some 5,000 on different portions of the Bible. That is a fulfillment of the desire of the reformers. You and I need to have a different outlook about the Bible. Don't take it home today and just put it on a shelf and never pick it up during the week. Spend time in the Word of God and thank God for the men who sacrificed with their own blood so that you could have an English Bible. I praise God for that. And I praise God for men like John Huss and John Wycliffe, and certainly the Apostle Paul, and hundreds and hundreds of others who share the same commitment. And if you get anything out of this today, maybe it's reviewing your commitment to the gospel, reviewing your commitment to spreading it, What are you doing to spread the gospel? What are you making your investments in? If you're just trying to have a better life here, you've missed it. Our our better life is not the here and now. Our better life is heaven. God has called us to proclaim the gospel. And we will suffer for that gospel if that be His will. And I guarantee you, it is His will. Keep that in mind. And as you have this day today, use it for his glory. And remember, this is what the reformers gave us right here. The five solas. And that's the gospel. Because if you look at it in this way, the gospel comes from Scripture alone, is by faith alone, it's by grace alone, in Christ alone. For God's glory alone. And that's what they came up with as a response to the Catholic Church who said it was Scripture plus, faith plus, grace plus, Christ plus. And God got glory from that. Beloved, that's a lie from the enemy. And that is what has bound people up in the state that they're in, with no hope. And if you're here today, and I just described you, you've heard enough today to condemn you to hell. And I would call you to repent and give your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for Your Gospel. We thank you for these biographical studies we've been able to do and looking at the commitment of these men, the sacrifices that they made so that we could have the Bible in our language so that we could hear your word, read your word, understand what it says, and respond to it. Open up hearts today, we pray. First, for those who don't know you that have not surrendered their life to you but also those who have and that they would evaluate their preaching of the gospel today what are they doing with this that they have been entrusted to Lord may we be faithful to the gospel may we be faithful to proclaim it and may we be faithful in